0: Take your Bible and look at Philippians chapter 2. This is not going to be uh, the only text we look at today as we continue our series, Family by the Book. However, this would be, I would consider, the the standard bearer for the subject matter we're going to talk about today. We talked about last week, uh, if you're a guest with us, we're in a series called Family by the Book. And what we're doing is looking at the Word of God. So the first week we looked at the Genesis ideal for the family. The second week of the series, we looked at the Genesis ideal for marriage. If you didn't hear those, please go back and listen to those. Um, and then the third week, we looked at the Genesis ideal for men and its leadership. We look at one aspect of that, which was responsibility. We'll look at the other aspect of male leadership, which is servanthood. These two things go together. So last week was part one. This is part two. These are a go-together message. Let's read about servant leadership. And our, sir, our leadership, men is to exemplify what we see of Christ. Chat, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. And as I read this, I, wanna, I want you to get something in your head. Have you ever wondered? Have you had a situation in life where you were thinking, I don't know what to do right here. I don't know the scripture. I don't have Nick on speed dial to ask him where should I turn for a principle. And you're just like in the moment, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? Should I do? When all else fails... Go to Philippians 2. When all else fails, when you want to know, how should I respond to this situation, to this person, to my spouse, to my kids, at work, anywhere in life, how should I respond? Go to Philippians 2. You will not go wrong. Let's look at Philippians 2. It says in verse 4, actually we'll start in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's normal living for God's people. Verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me? Thank you for this sacred text in our hands. It reminds us of what normal is for us. Humility, servanthood, modeled after our great savior. We claim the promise of verse 5 that we can have this mind. This is our mind. This is what we have as a result of the work of the gospel, the mind of Christ and others kind of mind. A not serve self, but serve others. Help us as men today, as we particularly look at men. Let us look at our leadership as a as servanthood. We are, we are living for your glory and for the betterment, for the good of our wife, our children. As men in general, we are called to servanthood in our society, in our culture, in our workplace, as a whole, in that of servanthood. It's the call of every single child of God but for men, it's an especially high calling. In Ephesians 5, for us men who are husbands, leaders of our home, it's an even, even high calling expressly. Because we're meant to live out this humility the way Christ lived out this humility and servanthood. Let us capture your heart, O King. And God's people said, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So today we're going to talk about this subject matter um, about a, a, a husband being a leader and and I love this kind of aspect I love this text this won't be the only text we look at this is a topical series we're going to be bouncing around in some different things and by the way as I'm jumping into this I do want to say something because you know that in a couple of days we kind of have the election and um, this is going to be a, a difficult time for some and, and let me tell you here's the deal this I got to speak this because I want to comfort your hearts More than likely, most people in America after Tuesday night are going to be disappointed, which is most people aren't going to get who they want, you know, because the way it typically works, if you've noticed on a map where you live, typically most people in your kind of zip code tend to vote mostly the same way. We cluster. So there'll be a lot of disappointment. But I will tell you this, whoever is our next president, that does not change who God is. And what's even greater about this, every person who occupies any office of authority is ultimately placed there by the sovereign hand of God. Now, am I I telling you you shouldn't vote? No, No, I think voting is a great way to serve a country. I'm not sure it's a biblical command, but I am sure it's a great way to serve a country of which it's a privilege that we would even get to do such a thing. So I will tell you this: as you vote, some of you, some of us have already voted. Some of us are kind of holding out for the excitement of Tuesday. That's kind of me. As we vote, um, I want you. I want you to do this. It's a privilege to get to serve that way. And many of us are struggling. Pray for wisdom. Follow your conscience. And even in this coming election, the hard part is sometimes you're wondering about a candidate. Even uh, some Christians are going by the principle of what just so you understand when you vote a lot of times you're voting for a platform you understand that right that's kind of how it goes so what you have to ask yourself sometimes is in the scriptures you're looking for where where does the platform and candidate stand with its, its most moral according to the scriptures vote your conscience and know that whatever happens like you're going to be okay god is sovereign he raises up and he brings down and he will bring into power who he has sovereignly decreed And nothing that anybody will do in power will ever stop what we do when it comes to making disciples. You understand that, right? No amount of persecution will actually do that. Some Christians are afraid that if one certain group gets in power, that it will strip away all Christian liberty. Now, that could happen. It could not. We are a country of laws and rules, so I don't know if things happen so easily. But if that were to happen, do you know through history... The one thing that you should never do to Christians if you want to stop them. It's one thing. You know what that is? Persecute them. If you want Christians to become ineffective, all you have to do is this. Give them money and make it easy on them, right? You can make a case that somewhat, although I don't want to have it taken away, but churches don't have to pay taxes. They are tax-exempt. Now, that makes it a lot easier for us to to operate. I'm not saying that we should. I'm not begging for that. But I'm saying this. Anytime a government makes it easy on us, it makes it easy for us to be lazy and apathetic. I am not scared, whoever occupies this throne. Because ultimately, I am a sojourner. You understand that, right? I'm a refugee. I'm a sojourner. I'm, I'm a part of this country, but this isn't my kingdom. I have a kingdom to come. I'm living for the I'm living for the line of eternity and not just the dot of right now. Y'all get that? So you're going to be okay. No need to to freak out. Which by the way, I'm not even sure we're going to know at Tuesday night who the president is yet. I have a feeling it's going to be one of those one of those things that's going to draw itself out. Let's get back to what I really love and what I'm really counting on here in the scriptures. I want to talk to men. And and by the way, I will tell you this, just from a social aspect, people go like, "Well, whoever our leaders are, man, they're going to break down and They're going to break down our, our families and our churches and our society and our structure. And to be honest with you, some leadership are a part of that. Some leadership do buy into what would be called cultural Marxism. I don't have time to go into that, but I will tell you this. No matter what political ruler exists, if men are leading their families in responsibility and servanthood, I am not worried about what the government tries to do. You, you understand that, right? That if men are following the pattern of what God has for the home, that is where all the change takes place. So in in the end, I would say this. We could have the best laws, the most most liberty, lowest taxes. I mean, it doesn't matter. Great economy. And if men aren't leading their homes with responsibility and servanthood, it's not going to go good for the whole entire nation. You got that, right? I mean, in the end, if men are doing the Genesis ideal... I am more concerned about what happens in the nuclear family than I am as a whole with the nation. That doesn't mean I punt on the nation. That doesn't mean I I punt on, on voting for my morals. But at the same time, I am more concerned with our men doing what men are supposed to do. That is the most important seedbed in our whole entire society. And what we find today in our text and what we're looking at, this ideal of the Genesis ideal, is that men are to be servants. Now, last week we looked at this one aspect of leadership, that men are designed to be leaders, but their leadership is not for power grabbing. And basically, most of our political leaders, that's what you see. Their leadership is meant to kind of grab power. Although men have power, that's part of leadership. God endues that and gives that. It's not to be exercised in such a way that as a man leading my family, I'm just about grabbing power. Actually, it's about me grabbing to responsibility and servanthood. Last week we looked at that responsibility aspect of male leadership in the home, with his wife, with his family and culture. And the essence of manhood is responsibility. If you're a young man and you're wondering, like, what is a man? Like, am I a man? Are you responsible? Do people have to tell you your respons- to carry out your responsibilities? If you're a young man, do your parents have to tell you more than once, which I know happens with none of us in here, do they have to tell you more than once to do what God has called you to do? Do they have to beg you to honor them? When you're a man in your 20s, are you responsible? Are you responsible to this new spouse that the Lord might have given you? Are you responsible with the young lady you may be dating to guard her purity, according to First First uh, Timothy chapter 5, 1 and 2? Responsibility is the essence of what a true man is. But also, there's servanthood, servanthood, humility. So some people wonder what is humility. Humility is not talking low about yourself or acting like woe is me or walking in some kind of weird self-pity. Humility is simply servanthood. It's life is not about me, it's about others. That's, that's humility. What is a humble person? It's a person that life's not about them. It's not about them getting them way, their way. Their goal is Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 4. Look not on your own interests, but the interests of others. They're living for the glory of God and serving for the good of others. That's how God always designed male leadership to look. This means it's not about grabbing power. It's about using the power that God has given you in service. Now, at this point, some men would say, well, that means service and servanthood. That just means I'm just going to become kind of, um, doormat for my family. That just means I got to do everything that my wife asks me to do. No, that, that doesn't mean that because we're mixing it with responsibility. You have certain responsibilities towards your wife. And that means those responsibilities doesn't mean you always do what, what she asks so that you can, so that you can, you know, just make, make sure that she's happy completely. It does mean that if you are a servant, that unless you're being asked to sin or you're compromising, you would have a very open heart to doing whatever you can that could please her shy of sin. Do you understand that, right? So, servanthood. Others before your own needs. What's really awesome about this aspect of male leadership, this is the kind of leadership Jesus had. Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man, Jesus, Came not to be served, but to, does anybody know the next word? Serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. How far did his service go? All the way to death. All the way to bearing the wrath of God. Now, none of you are, none of us men are qualified to bear the wrath of God for anybody, especially when it's already been done. But I will say, he gave his life completely, totality, sacrificially. Some men ask, how far should my servanthood service go as a leader? I would say, when you start drawing blood, let's have a conversation. Like, that's how far you can go. Jesus, of course, is our ultimate model. We just read the text a while ago, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 8. Here's what I love. When you look at verse 3 through 4, it's all about this idea of others' interests before your own interests. Have this mind among yourselves. This is not a suggestion. This is an imperative. Have this mind. This is yours. This is normal. This is what Jesus wants. Now, you may be saying to yourself as a husband, wait a minute. If I just serve that way, won't I be? I mean, what about me? Will there be any joy for me? I mean, servanthood, that sounds like a bad rap. I was watching uh, Douglas Wilson interview another guy about this idea of servant leadership. And the guy that this pastor, Douglas Wilson, was interviewing, the guy basically says, we shouldn't be promoting this idea of servant, uh, servant leadership for men because why would a man sign up for anything in marriage where they would be a servant? Like we need to kind of, you know, we're, we're not helping men understand this properly. And then I thought to myself, well, you're just using something that, like if, if a man was chasing his own pride, of course there wouldn't be anything appealing. But there is actually great joy in servanthood. Just so you understand, God doesn't give us commands to follow just so he can make our life miserable. We don't understand this, right? That's not why God does these things. In fact, look at the text. And when you look at Philippians 2, 3 through 8, notice this. Humility, the mind of Christ, others before yourself. And look what happens in verse 6. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, and born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Now you see that, right? You see that. That's the humility part. You might be wondering, where's the joy in that? Well, here's the promise that Jesus had said. If you humble yourself, what can God do? Exalt. If you exalt yourself, what will God do? So, in any kind of servanthood, men, there is joy in that. He becomes his own pleasure and treasure in that. Look what happens with Christ. He serves. He does this humility. Then look what verse 9. People always forget verse 9 is a part of humility. Therefore God with Jesus highly exalted him. Bestowed on him a name that is above every name. Even our dating system is after the birth of Christ. Even the name of Christ. The most popular name that's ever been named on the face of the planet. Jesus. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under earth. When the end comes... All will be delivered up to the Son. And every time we'll confess it, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see the exaltation? So I will tell you this, men. When we walk in this servanthood type of lifestyle, I promise you on the authority of God's word, you will find joy in that service. God will exalt that. Now, I don't know. That, don't don't go over there painting out what that looks like. Well, that, does that mean that I'm going to be able to, you know, get get new rims for my car? Or does that mean, you know, I mean, what, what I'm saying is God will bless that. God will exalt that. There is no more satisfying living than living underneath the pleasure of God. That's what servant leadership looks like. It's not about you. By the way, when you look through the Bible, it's all about servanthood. The 12 apostles, God's first designated apostles, capital A apostles, his first 12 disciples. They were all about service. In fact, what the way he trained them and discipled them for that three and a half years was about service. You remember, if you were to look over, and you can look at it if, if you have some time, you can turn to the left and look in Luke chapter twenty two. The disciples they were having a dispute about who would be the greatest. They he was Jesus was trying to teach them about servant leadership. In his discipling of them, but like all men, they kind of got focused on the power that they could grab from it. That's one of the problems that men do with leadership. They sometimes think it's a power grab when they hear leadership. And so Jesus says, knows this, and it says in Luke 2, 24, "...a dispute among, arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest." The disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Pride, right? And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise authority over them. This is Luke twenty-two twenty-five. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. Verse 27. For who is the greater? The one who reclines at the table or who serves? Is it not that the one who reclines at the table... But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus basically lays out and says, you're arguing about who gets to have power, be the greatest. And I'm telling you, the greatest is the one who serves. That's the greatness of leadership. Even the way he modeled for his disciples, it was all about serving. Even when you kind of play this out and look at what the disciples, the early disciples started to do. Even before the cross, he was sending them out. He was sending even others out on gospel ministry. If you were to look in Luke 9, 1 through 6, he's sending the 12 out to do some gospel ministry. And look what he says. He says in Luke 9, 1 through 6, And Jesus called the 12 together. He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure all diseases. So they have power intrinsically. And men, you have power intrinsically by the position that God has given you. But your leadership is not to grab for that power. It's to use that power to serve with. Now watch what happens. He gives them power over all demons to cure diseases, to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God, to show that the kingdom of God actually has authority over the curse of the fall. And verse 2, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. That sounds pretty severe, right? What was he trying to show them? This isn't about a power grab. I'm giving you great power, but it's not about you going out and grabbing power. It's about you serving. So don't try to gather stuff for yourself. Whatever half you enter, stay there, and from there not depart. And wherever you do not receive you, then you shall leave that town. Shake the dust off your feet. And they depart and went through villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Notice. Their ministry wasn't about getting stuff and gaining stuff. It was about serving. This is how the kingdom expands. This is what male leadership looks like. So even as men, our our leadership in our home is to be very servant-oriented. And I've noticed this. When it comes to male leadership, if if he has servanthood but not doesn't understand the aspect of his responsibilities, sometimes that servanthood does become kind of a bit of a doormat. He doesn't carry out all his responsibilities. He would consider sometimes servanthood being, I won't speak gentle words of correction in my household. So... There's these two elements of male leadership, of responsibility and servanthood that are two sides of one coin that kind of kiss each other other and come together. When a man has these two elements together, then his servanthood actually serves for the betterment of the home. Even if in the moment his servanthood isn't what everybody else is applauding. But as long as he's not doing it to satisfy his own greed for power. So he can serve. He can serve sacrificially. Look at Ephesians five. I want to walk through some of what this serving looks like, especially with a husband with his wife. He, in in Ephesians 5.25, he's to serve his wife, walk in humility with his wife. He's to do it sacrificially. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's not really sacrifice if it doesn't cost you something. Husbands, when was the last time that what you did for your wife and your family cost you something? I'm not talking about just monetarily. Sometimes it could be energy. It could be effort. It could be that some kind of gratification that you wanted for your own life. Some pleasure that you were wanting that you had to deny yourself and give that up. Love her sacrificially. By the way, some say, well, the husband is commanded to love the wife, but the wife isn't. No, that's not true. Titus 2 says the wife... Should love the husband. But the husband does have a higher love calling than her. Our love is to be of a higher caliber of sacrifice because it's to model Jesus Christ. That means if there is some kind of, uh, in the marriage, that means if, like, let's say that you have some kind of argument, which I understand never happens in here, but let's say this happens. Who makes the first move? I would hope that the man would, that he'd make the first move. That he would be the model and exemplary of humility. That he would be the first one to say, I've sinned against God, I've sinned against you. Here's my sin, will you forgive? But he is to love her sacrificially like Christ loves us. Not only that, look in verse 26. He's to spiritually nourish her. It says that he, Jesus, might sanctify her, having cleansed her. By the washing of water with the word. Now, remember, he's making a parallel in this text of what Jesus does and what a husband does. Jesus sanctifies the church. He cleanses the church with the water of the word. He nourishes her spiritually. But we see by parallel illustration in the text, what we're understanding is that husbands have this kind of call as well. There's a spiritual nourishment that we do with our wife. It means we pray for her. We pray with her. We speak to her about our study of scripture. We study scripture with her. We share what the Lord is doing. We have spiritual conversations. We mingle our souls. That means we care about our soul. Look in verse 27. So that Jesus might present the church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. This is Jesus is trying to present the church holy. Which means Jesus isn't okay with sin. Which means a husband He's serving her by caring about her soul. He cares about sin in her life. He cares about her walk in holiness. Now, what's interesting is, when does a man start caring about his wife's walk in holiness when he is really concerned about his walk in holiness? Why are more of us men not concerned about the holiness of our wife? Because we're really kind of taking, you know, we're kind of punting on first down when it comes to our own personal holiness. It means we must care for her soul. And men... It's easy. Some men say, like, how do I know I care for her soul? Well, this is really easy because nine out of 10 men, and I probably would put this 9.999 out of 10 men, right? Really care a lot for the body of their wife, right? So here's the deal as much as you care for her body, care for her soul. Very easy. That's how you do it. Doesn't that sound simple? The simplest thing today? What did you learn at church today? (laughs) Care for my wife's soul as much as I care for her body, right? Here's the deal. We are whole persons. We are inner persons. We're soul, spirit, mind. And we're outer persons, body. We're both. And we have to love our wives not only at that physical level, but that eternal level as well. It says in the text, it's paralleling how Jesus loves the church and how men are to model the servant leadership that Jesus has. Even look in verse 28. He's to cherish her. Cherish her. In the same way, these are, this is the way a husband serves his wife like Christ serves the church. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. People say, oh, look, Nick, here is evidence that you are to practice some self-love in life. I'm like, no, the Bible's not promoting self-love. It's making a point that that you men naturally have a little bit more of a predisposition to selfishness. And as much as you love cherishing your own self, cherish her. As much energy as you want to put into satisfying what brings you joy and pleasure... Push that to cherishing her. So he says, for no one ever hated his own flesh. He's talking about men, but nourish and cherish it just as Christ does the church. If you were to look on average about who has the more robust um, uh, hobbies, hobbies aren't wrong. It's typically a man over a woman because men typically like to cherish, nourish and cherish themselves. And here's what he says. Husbands, as much as men, as much as you nourish and cherish yourself, nourish and cherish her. Husbands, do you cherish your wives? And I say you. Do we cherish our wife? Do we cherish her like we cherish our car? Do we cherish her like we cherish our favorite team? A little bit easier for me. My team stinks, right? So I've already pushed that back over to my wife for the season. Do you cherish her like you cherish politics? I mean, you, you, you listen to, you know, three hours of news cycles a day. But you won't give her thirty minutes. Do you cherish her like you cherish your vocation and your job? And some men we love our jobs. That's a great thing. Do we cherish her like we cherish our vocations? Do we plan time with her? Do we have intentional? When we have date time, do we actually come with a plan? Do we think about it? Do we show her that this is more than just marking some check mark? But I've actually thought intentionally about you. Like I really do like you. Do we seek ways to love her in ways that she appreciates? Now, you already know, I am not the biggest fan of the Five Love Languages book in this aspect. I do not like that the book promotes in it that basically do the the ways that your spouse likes to be loved, and chances are they'll push that over to you. That's selfish, self-seeking, that is against humility and servanthood. I give that a boo. But I will say I do appreciate some things about the Five Love Languages. I appreciate that there are some observational ways. So that you could love your spouse. So for instance, I think it's wrong that you could say, you know what, my wife loves words of affirmation. This is a way that I can serve her and love her like Christ loves the church. This is a way I can cherish my wife. She loves words of affirmations or she loves acts of service or she loves receiving gifts. She loves quality time. She loves physical touch. These are all ways you can cherish your wife nothing's so don't think when I kind of talk bad about the five Love languages book I'm not saying husbands if this minister to her offer any of these five or all these five or whatever most is applicable to her I'm just saying don't do those to manipulate her into getting what you want which let's just be honest for most of us men it's like well if I will clean the dishes and give her some quality time she's going to hit my physical touch right no that's just being selfish Although God is pro-sex in the covenant of marriage, so don't get me wrong. But it's not manipulating her, but it's cherishing her. You understand, this is a part of serving, servanthood, men leading their homes. Let me give you another difficult one. Look in James one nineteen. Here's the principle. If I've had people say sometimes, how do we communicate better? How do we communicate better? Well, one of the ways you can serve your wife as Christ served the church is sacrifice for her this is the hardest part is learning how to communicate well i think 119 although that's not the context but you see a principle of how to not get into sinful anger and to not practice sinful anger and your own wrath and to trust god you see in verse 19 it says this beloved brothers let every person be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger Does everybody see that do you notice that in most of our arguments in life let's flip that around what happens? Quick to anger, quick to open up our yappers, then we're, then we're last after we've already done Sherman's march on Georgia, then we'll actually listen. But good communication actually flips it around. What is a good communicator? It's a good listener. That's a good communicator. It's a good listener. What's a good communicator? One who has listened fully so that when they speak, they speak wisely and they don't get to the wrath. By the way, um, here's what happens usually when we're not good listeners, when we aren't trying to listen. It's really because we're not humble. Because in the moment, you know what it's like in with you and your spouse. You both have an opinion. And she speaks. And what you're thinking to yourself is, as soon as she takes a breath, I got something I got to say. And as soon as I say it, it's going to shut her mouth up. I just know it. So you kind of wait. And you're really not listening at that moment, are you? You're You're just formulating your defense for why her opinion isn't that great. So she takes her pause, then you let into it. And then while you're doing this, what is she doing? The same exact thing. She's formulating her defense. What are neither of us doing? Walking in humility. What are neither of us doing? Actually trying to do swift to hear. We're swift to hear our own opinions. And then we just have this kind of eternal ping pong, you know, like what's the ping pong tournament going on where the ball's never hitting the court. We're just flawlessly volleying back and forth forever. But what happens if a man at that moment said, I'm going to listen. Tell me what your hurts. Tell me what you think. Tell me your opinion. I mean, I will tell you this. If you're a servant leader, if your wife has something to say, it's worth listening to. It doesn't cost you anything to listen. It doesn't. That doesn't mean you don't ever speak. If you listen well, that means when you speak, you're going to speak rightly. And that doesn't mean even if she doesn't like what you say, but if you in humility were to listen Well, there'd be such grace in that. But I find that even the way we cherish her, I'm just telling you, man, your wife will never feel cherished if she doesn't have a man that can actually listen to her. I know what you may be thinking, like, yeah, man, you mean am I going to have to listen to her feelings? (laughs) Like, when she talks, she always uses these things like, I feel. Like, what's so bad about that? You could get to know her soul better. There's nothing wrong with that. By the way, I just will give you also some free advice, women. Um, now listen, God typically wires a woman with a higher capacity of emotion than the typical male, although that's not always across the board. You do understand that. But typically, why is that? Because she's a nurturer. I mean, this is what makes her great at motherhood. But I will tell you this, when you are listening to her emotionally, you'll get to know her soul. And I can tell you sometimes, you know what your wife just wants? She just wants to be heard. Even if you don't agree, she just wants to know that you can look her in the eyes and hear what she had to say and that she fully got to communicate it without being interrupted. And vice versa, women, I'll say this. Sometimes I'll I'll have women who will say, he just does not talk to me about his emotions. And then I would say this, does he ever talk about his emotions? If he doesn't ever talk about his emotions, don't expect him to talk like you. Do you get that? I mean, I'll be so women are frustrated. Like my, my husband just does not tell me what he's feeling and thinking. And and it might be the fact that he's not feeling and thinking much. Okay, so like don't, I mean, I, like don't expect him to act in a way that's not him. What you want to look more for is this. Will he listen to me when I express emotion? Okay, now that doesn't mean I'm giving you men kind of this carte blanche thing to walk out of here like great. I'm just gonna keep my mouth shut because actually, when I keep my mouth shut, I don't get in trouble. And so I'm just gonna keep walking this lane. But you think you get I think you get the gist of what I'm saying. We're serving her. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. You guys doing okay? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, this servant leadership, this serving element. You'll walk in 1 Peter 3 7 when this is there. When you're serving like Christ served the church, when you're valuing this. You'll walk in 1 Peter 3, 7. It says, likewise, husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. This means that you are observing her. You're learning her. You're learning her. Oh yeah, there's a learning process. You're even adapting as she's not going to be the same person you married 20 years later. She's going to change just like you are. You're learning her. You're showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. This doesn't mean that she is a weak person intrinsically, but it does mean that she is designed as a weaker vessel, meaning you cannot handle her like you handle a man. Sorry, men, but the way you talk to your buddies, and you just—you may love the sarcasm and the kind of mocking humor is how guys sometimes talk to each other. I mean, that's how guys kind of accept each other. We just kind of mock each other. That's just like, if you're a man and, and all the men around you are making fun of you, that means they actually like you, just so you know. That's a good sign. I know some of you sarcasm people right now are like, thank you, Jesus. Okay, I'm about to I was a five on my sarcasm. Now I'm turning it up to a 10. Be careful. (laughs) There can be some depravity in that, too. But it does mean that you don't handle her like a man. You don't talk to her like a man. You may have a job where you take command and you may be in some kind of leadership position where every day you're barking out orders and people are following your leadership command and the power structures of your of your job and vocation. But when you get home, that's not the same thing. Totally different. You have to honor her as the weaker vessel. Meaning you can hurt her easily. Means she's valuable. You cannot handle her like a man. This is how you serve her. Look in verse 7, continue. Since we are heirs with you, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, she is just as valuable as you are. Just because you are in leadership position does not mean your thoughts are more superior to her thoughts. Or your intellect in, or... Is superior to hers. You are heirs of the grace of life. God has given you a position of authority and leadership, but he has given that to you not to grab power, but to exercise servanthood and responsibility for the glory of God and for the good of your wife and children and society and your church. Notice this, your prayers may not be hindered. You want a really ineffective prayer life? Then don't live according to 1 Peter 3, 7. Don't dwell with your wife. Don't study her. Don't be with her. Don't show honor to her. Don't consider her of value. Then yeah, God will hinder your prayers. I mean, isn't that, isn't that interesting? Sometimes, men, your prayers, our prayers are ineffective because we're not living according to God's command here. This is the servant leadership of what a man does. Look at Galatians 6, 1 through 3. I also want to point something else out. When we say servanthood... It always has to be mixed with the proper responsibility of the home, which means this. This also means that at times you would bring loving, gentle correction. Your wife, she's your wife, but she's also your sister in the Lord, which means there may be times to bring correction to her. Now, you can only bring correction as a leader if you're first looking at your own sin. Anytime you talk to somebody about their sin, you must see your sin as the log or else you're going to see their sin as the log. When you talk to somebody about their sin, you obey Matthew 7 and you look at the log in your own eye so you can appropriately deal with the splinter in theirs. And when you do that, you'll come with humility. But there may be times where you offer gentle correction. In Galatians 6, look in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of what? Gentleness. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says that some we have to admonish. There is some correction as a leader, as a husband, that as a servant. Sometimes there is an aspect that you have to bring gentle correction. You have to. And wives, if you have a husband that will gently but lovingly, looking at the bigness of his own sin, will talk to you about your sin, that is a husband that is loving you well in that moment. Loving you well. Now, I'm going to tell you this is hard to do. It's hard to pull off. This takes a lot of gospel centrality. And just so we know, yes, wives, and we're going to talk about the wives role next week, okay? You you should talk to your husband about sin as well. We're going to get into that. You know, it ought to be actually normal in a gospel marriage because two really big sinners get together in one household, right? It should be normal that we repent of sin, and it shouldn't be abnormal that we have ever talked to each other about each other's sin and then have said, you're right, right? I have sinned against you. That should not be abnormal. That's normal gospel conversation. Your spouses, we, should be able to offer gentle correction. And if we can't, either man for woman and woman to man, then, then I'm telling you, there is a lack of humility. There is a lack of valuing the mind of Christ. There is a haughtiness to us. Not only that, look at the end. Look in verse 2. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And part of our service to our wives it's not only this gentle correction, but it's also bearing the burden of her sin. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Here's what's great about marriage. You help bear the burden of her sin and she helps burden the the burden of your sin. That's a really good thing. That's what makes one of the beauties of marriage is when you can, one of the transparencies of marriage, when you can know about each other's sin, you can offer gentle correction, you can pray for each other, then you can help hold an accountability and a bearing of burdens with each other. That is, because here's the deal, in verse 2, bear one another's burdens. Sometimes burdens are too heavy. Sometimes burdens get, are are so much easily borne if they can be shared and distributed. Galatians 6-2 has this idea that the, weight of that sin has become too big I've seen many cases where and and I'm just you know wives there's tons of wives that know this that that husbands you know you'll see this young couple get married and then she gets shocked when like a year later she discovers that her new husband still has some struggle with lust and with with porn and and then she discovers it and she gets shocked and thrown off the edge and just acts like the the this marriage and he can never be redeemed and and then and then she hears something like, I'm so mad that I would even have to play a part in helping his sanctification. I would go, listen, he is your brother. And, and one of the benefits of your marriage is that you can help hold an account. There's an accountability aspect. You're not the only accountability. Other men need to be involved in that well. But, but there's also an aspect that you're bearing that burden with him. What a great opportunity to pray over him. What a great opportunity to talk to him. What a great opportunity to grow in Christ together. husbands. If there's a sin burden in her own life, it's a wonderful opportunity to bear that burden with her. And just so you know, this servanthood, people hear this and they think, this is just weakness, Nick. I hate this message. Like, man, delete that one. If humility and servanthood is weakness, then we've just accused Jesus of being weak, right? Because that's what he was. That's what he did. And servanthood, it's not weakness, it's meekness. Jesus had all authority, power, and control in the moment. But he did not avail himself to all those so that he could actually exercise a servant aspect. Men naturally are more physical, more t- naturally more powerful, and actually a stronger destructive substance typically in most home environments. And what God wants us to do is to practice a meekness with that power and authority that we have and serve for the good of her. So these are the responsibility traits that God has responsibility and servanthood. Is everybody with me? Do you understand these responsibility and servanthood, these are part of great leadership. Now, let's, let's end with, I just want to have a frank discussion about what happens when this goes bad, okay? When this goes bad. Which, by the way, um, when you read all the Bible, you start to discover that's what God always intended. We're not going to have time to look at it. I have it in my notes, but I'm just going to run out of time on it. But if you were to ever read Deuteronomy 17, And it talks about the the kings of Israel. What you find about the kings of Israel is they had responsibility and servanthood was how they were supposed to lead life. But when you start reading through the the Old Testament, what do you find most of these uh, Israelite kings did? They grabbed for power, right? What did David do? Adultery, murder, grab for power. What did Solomon do? Excessive riches, power. But actually the kings of Israel were always to actually ride out Deuteronomy, rehearse the word of God so they could be responsible and lead the people. And none of these kings were to accrue to themselves a lot of gold and a lot of silver and a lot of horses, okay? And that's exactly what they did. What was that? It was a lack of true leadership. Leadership always is about responsibility and servanthood. But let's talk about what happens when this goes wonky, when this goes sideways, when, when God doesn't when, when a man decides that he's got this leadership, but he's going to go a little rogue with it. He's going to um, not be responsible or serve, but he's going to grab for power. He's going to grab for power. Here's what happens. Um, abuse can happen. That's what can happen. Abuse can happen. Or some of us more biblical counselors, we like to sometimes call it oppression. But abuse can happen. Now, I'm not saying every man that's not practicing responsibility and servanthood is an abuser, but some wonder, how does a man get to the point in his leadership of getting into abuse? I would say it's because he sees his leadership as a grab for power. When I say a grab for power, it means that he is basically manipulating the whole entire circumstance to get what he wants. It's about his kingdom, not God's kingdom. Now, if we were to take statistically one in four women in the in our average society experiences some form of abuse. And basically, 85% of abuse basically comes from men to women. Now, I know you may be thinking, what about women to men? It's 15%, but I'm going to kind of deal here more with men to women. Um, here's the thing. You want to be careful about what you assign as abuse because in any situation, you want to make sure there's nuances to that, right? That, so you got to be very cautious with what you assign to abuse. It's it's wrong to not call something abuse, but it's also wrong to accuse a man of being abusive when that's an overreach of that word for his situation. Both extremes have to be cautioned against. But let me give you a great definition by a lady named Darby Strickland, who I think does some of the best writing. She's in, she's in the biblical counseling genre, who does some of the best writing on domestic abuse. And here's the reason I'm talking about this. I can't talk about this subject about male leadership is not a grab for power. It's responsibility and servanthood. Because when male leadership does grab for power, it easily leads to abusive things. It does. And there's a high likelihood of it happening even in the church. I love what Darby Strickland says. Abuse occurs in a marriage when one spouse pursues their own self-interest by seeking to control and dominate the other through a pattern of coercive, controlling, and punishing behaviors. This controlling pattern of behavior is com- commonly called domestic abuse or domestic violence. Darby Strickland says, I like to use the term oppression since it provides a framework for this behavior that is addressed in scripture and captures the domination that it involves. No matter what form of oppression takes place, its intended outcome is the same, to punish and wound a victim so that oppression gets the oppressor gets their world the way they want it. An oppressor's behavior says, Serve me! Or suffer the consequences. So when men are not walking in responsibility and servanthood and grabbing power, this is where they can get tempted to lead down this. So it would be something like this. Let me give you some kind of um, some indications. Now, we would all say this. um, Anybody, any man who walks in and is uh, fitting in the category of an abuser... Typically, I mean, the most easiest way for us to notice is something physical, right? Have you noticed this? The word abuse gets thrown around a lot now. Everything is abuse, right? You you understand that in our culture? Like this is happening right now. Almost everything is accused of abuse. And that is a perversion. And that is actually not helpful to the women who are being abused when you just use it in such a flippant manner. The women who are getting abused aren't getting the proper help because you're kind of crying wolf on everything. Are we understanding this? But at the same time, we don't want to walk away from it completely. The easiest part for us to understand when power has taken over is when it gets physical. That's easy for us to notice. Physical force. This is when a man commits physical abuse. There's hitting, slapping, shoving, grabbing, pinching, biting, hair pulling, spitting. Men, if you have ever done any of that, you are abusing it also includes coercive behavior that's physically detrimental to the woman, such as forced drug or alcohol use, denying, uh, denying or restricting medical care or treatment. I could tell you this. What's so easy about physical abuse is it's so easy to look and observe and it's so easy to call out. So it's very easy. What's really harder is when the abuse is not physical, when it fits in other categories. So how would we as God's people even know how to reconcile with that? How would we even know that? Well, what I would say is this. Whenever what a man is doing... Now, listen, I do know women can do it, but majority, it's more men. It's how it kind of works when men aren't walking in servanthood responsibility. I I know, by the way, I know this message is going a little bit longer, but I just want to say some things about abuse. Are you guys okay with that? Okay. So he says this. So... Let me give you some other ways that men walk in abusive patterns. And here's what you're looking for. When it's physical, that's so obvious. I mean, yeah, you could right out easily call that physical abuse. What we're looking for past that is we're looking for patterns, patterns, patterns. Habitual patterns of what he's doing in other areas that involve more verbal and emotional but may not involve physical. We're looking for patterns. And particularly in those patterns, we're looking for he is trying to get an outcome. He is trying to get his way. He is trying to control and coerce to get his own kingdom. That's what we're looking for. So, for instance, some of it's intimidation. Some men are abusers by the intimidation that they offer. And here's what intimidation looks like. He offers her certain looks, actions, and gestures designed to make her afraid. It includes often lording over her, using his size and tone of voice to scare her. It includes sometimes destroying her property, abusing the pets, showing off his weapons, reckless behavior while driving. I know you've be saying, like, my husband's reckless when he drives every single time. Well, here would be a great example. If he is just a bad driver and he hates being late, that's not abusive behavior. But if he is recklessly driving... Because every time you go to your, every time y'all go to the store, he doesn't want to go and he is trying to coerce some way of getting out of it the next time. So he drives crazy every single time. That is actually a control, that's a pattern trying to control and get his own kingdom. Do you understand the difference, right? So don't think like, man, my husband's a bad driver, he's an abuser. No, you should probably just drive. <laughs> we're looking for patterns, past the physical, we're looking for patterns. And the patterns are really there so that he can coerce and get his way. Make his own kingdom. Get control and power. Men, in our leadership, it's easy to go this place. I'm telling you, it's so easy to go here. This is what pride does in a man. So ridicule. Ridiculing her. This is strong verbal abuse. Putting the victim down. Putting her down. You attempt to make her feel negatively about herself and her abilities. You do things like call her a bad mother. You call her names. You mock her. You give her guilt trips. You constantly play these mind games. There was one man that what he would do is, he would often, every about once a week he would come home and he would just try to start some kind of fight with her. Not that she did anything wrong, just so that he could kind of put her on edge and felt like she had to always kind of walk on eggshells and please him. What is that guy doing? He had a consistent pattern of doing that. He was trying to manipulate her into getting what his kingdom that he wanted. Now, that's that's abuse. Now, It's not for the man who just has a bad day and he got yelled at at work and he comes and you know he has a bad day and kind of fires off the family. I'm not calling that guy abusive. I'm talking about the guy who walks in the consistent pattern manipulating people to get what he wants. Do you understand the difference how you kind of look at abuse and not abuse? Isolation is another way that a man can practice these habit patterns. Isolation. That means he cuts her off from support, influence, community with friends and family. He isolates her. He, does it, he monitors where she, who she goes, who she sees, who she contacts. He won't let her go places. He won't let her go to work. He'll limit her internet usage. He'll control her cell phone. This is habit patterns, and you're doing it especially to kind of get your own kingdom. He'll put all guilt and blame on her. He'll deny. He'll make light of anything he does. He'll blame shift to her often. He'll, he'll, he'll often... Use her as a scapegoat to reduce his responsibility. He'll use children. He'll threaten to take the children away. Yes, men, if every time you get in an argument, you threaten divorce to get her to act the way that you want, or you threaten to take the kids away to get her to do what you want, that's abusive. That's a habit pattern of trying to coerce. This is what a man is doing when he's not walking responsibility and servanthood. Male privilege. It's when you're treating women as inferior you don 't want to listen to her you don 't want to listen to her opinions you 're dogmatic you you, um, you act like the king of the castle. you view her as inferior, stupid, and troublesome you 're economically doing things to her You're preventing your, you 're preventing you won 't let her know what kind of money is in your bank account you you will restrict her and what she can spend you give her you you make sure that she isn't on the checking accounts. You give her an allowance, not in a way that you've structured your bills. Sometimes there's allowances, but you would make rules for her that don't apply to yourself. And I'm talking about a consistent pattern where you're trying to bring an outcome of control and get your own kingdom. Sometimes it's through threats. You, you'll do things like call social services. You'll threaten to call social services so she's scared of anything she could do that her kids might be taken away. You'll threaten physical harm. You'll even threaten, commit suicide to manipulate her into acting the way that you, that, that, that you want her. You'll, you'll, you'll So this is like past the physical. If that's so easy. It's these other things. Now, I know this is a longer message, but I just want to point this to you. This is what happens with men who aren't walking in responsibility and servanthood. They are easy prey to take and try to grab this kind of power. Now here's the great news. God can change that. That's the great news. The good news for you online and for us here is that the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed us and can change us out of this. One of the things that I love about our current society is there have been more abuse advocate associations. One of the bad things I found with some of them is they act like men can never change. The good news is this. An abuser can actually change. This will be the last scripture we look at, but go to 1 Corinthians Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10. I just want to show this to you. Are you guys okay? Are you doing okay? I was going to cut this out here at the end to kind of save 10, 15 minutes, but it's like the Lord wouldn't let me do it, guys, because I I feel like the church doesn't know much, and more of you are doing disciple-making, and I, I want you to be equipped for this. Just so you know, guests, church is not just about consuming. It's about making disciples and equipping you. What's interesting, you look in, and by the way, if you want to have more conversations about this, please, let's do it. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. These are all people describing who have the habitual pattern of these sinful patterns, aren't showing a life of commitment to Jesus Christ and obedience, if you are a Christian, there is an aspect of obedience. It's a part of you being a part of the kingdom of God. Your obedience doesn't make you a Christian. Your obedience is a result of being a Christian. Verse 10. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards. And what's that next word? Nor what? Revilers. Revilers. Now, in, in some versions, they translate that word abusers. In some translations, they translate that verbal abusers. And my ESV, New King James, King James, uh, NASB, it says revilers. But it has this, that word has this aspect of someone who is insulting, slanderous, and abusive. A habitual pattern, and they're trying to get their own force control. Now, here's what's interesting. That is one of the aspects of someone who's not a part of the kingdom of God, consistently displaying that. But keep looking. Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Look in verse 11. And such, What? And such, what were some of you? So the great news is this: the abuser can change. There is the good news for that man. There's a great book if you ever want to read it uh, by a guy named the name of Chris Moles, who wrote a great book on how to help the man who is an offender, a man who is an abuser, an oppressor. But God can change that. Such were some of you. Repentance can happen. The, the reviler can change. Now, there's a process to that, which is a whole nother conversation. But I want to throw that. I wanted to throw, talk about abuse because this is what happens when men who are leaders are not walking responsibility and servanthood. They are easy praise to this kind of power grab. Now, I end with this. And worship team, you can make your way up here. All through the Scripture, guys, when you read the Scriptures, all through the Scriptures, the design of a man was that he would be a force for good with his wife, with his children, with society. He is the leader of the home. And his leadership was always meant to be something good and beneficial. He is the hub of which the spokes and everything come out from. Which means, men, we are the source of good. We are the source of Jesus for our family. As we move into a time of taking communion, I think this is a great time to think about our ultimate servant leader, Jesus, who was responsible to do what only he could do. He, he faithfully said no to sin, said yes to God, became our sin bearer. He served. He did, not, he did not hold back himself and not go to the cross. He served completely by offering himself as a sacrifice in our place. He walked in perfect leadership so that, that, that not only man could be redeemed, so that we men would have an, an idea of what God really wants from us. So we take now a time of taking communion to exemplify and look at that and value it. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing to the Lord, prepare our hearts. And if you're a man here today and you are, as I described, a man who takes power in his leadership... What a great time to repent! Repent to your wife, repent to your family. What a great time to get help. That's a part of what God wants you to do, and part of you taking communion today. In fact, you may not want to take communion if that's you. If you're not going to, if, if you're not serious about it yet, and you haven't got it right, you, communion might not be for you. But for all of us fighting sin or in Christ, communion's for us to remember what Jesus has done for us, to value the work of the gospel. This is what's going to help you as a man to serve out. The more you look at what Jesus has done, this helps you to actually know how you're to do what you're called to do. Would you pray over this? Thank you that we could talk about your word and look at a difficult subject, a big subject. We now sing to you and prepare our hearts. All of us men, would you let us be overwhelmed with who Jesus is, with his servanthood and responsibility that as we take this, There's a a new boldness and passion in our soul to live out Jesus right in front of our families, in front of our culture, to live out as men are designed to live. Bless this. Would you do this as we prepare to take it?